podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Mourinho era begins. And welcome to episode 17 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host, Dan Tracy, and in the next 60 minutes, we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days. While in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye, and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football, and more importantly, we once again have a full house. And that means leading the line from the front is Carl. Carl, how have you been since we last spoke? Yeah, really good, thanks, Dan. And uh, obviously, you know, if you're a Spurs fan, you know, and a, a win at last and an away win. So um, happy to talk all things football at the moment. <laughs> yeah, not just all things football apart from Tottenham. Yes, jubilation for us two. But of course, that also means that we're joined by his strike partner, Drew. Drew, how have you been in the past fortnight, I guess, actually? Yes, how have you been since then? I hope all is well. Yeah, absolutely. Everything is going well. Even though Chelsea lost this weekend, I think it was a good loss that they needed. So, all in all, no problems from this side of the pond. Good man. Yes, we'll certainly be talking about Chelsea and I guess their slightly heroic defeat at the weekend. But before we do, I'll do the social media bits first. If you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at StanTracy983. And the podcast has its own account, which is at RealFootballPost. Join and become a fellow shareholder. If you can find me via iTunes, that's great. And you can do that by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Well, if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud and Acast. Well, the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. And as you should know by now, the Real Football Cast is sponsored by Loserpool. What is Loserpool, I hear you ask? It's the company behind the game, Last Man Standing. One which is free to enter and the prize pool once again stands at... £1,000. If this has grabbed your interest, then be sure to visit loserpool.com and create an account. The odds of winning are great, but they're even better if you sign up. Right then, it's time to go live. And where should we go first? I guess we have to go to London. And although there was an interesting London derby at the weekend, there was also the appointment of Jose Mourinho as Tottenham manager. Now, Carl, you're probably a little bit bored of talking Jose, so I'm going to start with Drew this week. Drew, what is your take on the managerial ins and outs in the white half of North London? Well, the first thing that came to mind was when they fired Pochettino, obviously they had someone lined up because you don't fire someone more than halfway through the international break unless you have the replacement ready. So that was the first thing I thought of. And then when it was announced as Mourinho, I thought to myself, well, you know what? Obviously Spurs and Daniel Levy are prioritizing trophies now. Something that Pochettino could not do, and you can fault him or not, Jose Mourinho is essentially the anti-Poch, and that's why he's there. He's there to win an FA Cup. He's there to win, well, not this year, but a League Cup. And if the Premier League happens to come by, cherry on top. If you want two cherries on top, then that would be the Champions League, something that Pochettino wasn't able to deliver in his time uh, in North London. So that was my first initial thoughts when I saw Jose Mourinho hired, is that Daniel Levy wants a trophy just as bad. He's willing to bring in someone he's going to clash with. He's willing to bring in someone he knows is going to complain and whinge during pressers about money and transfers. And yet everything is going to be fine. Everything's going to be worth it because he got Mourinho to bring trophies. So I think that's the way Spurs are looking at this season right now is get the FA Cup at minimum. And if they can do anything else in the league or in Europe, that would just be uh, some extra icing on the cake. 
And Drew, you did raise a good discussion point with me on Twitter yesterday, that being Monday night. Do you want to share it with the listeners? And then I'll allow Cole to give his take on your thoughts. Uh, I'm trying to remember which one it was because I know we've talked more than once. Just remind me real quick. Good point. It was about sort of sacrificing the league and going just for the FA Cup and getting uh, that yes. trophy. Yeah, and and so that's what I and so playing into that with Daniel Levy is I think Spurs this year might be willing to sacrifice a year of Champions League so that they can focus on the FA Cup and maybe the Champions League. Everyone wants money, of course. Daniel Levy, we know, is a shrewd businessman and would definitely prefer to get as much money as possible. But for one year, maybe it's worth it. He can finally say to everyone, look, all of the penny pinching, all of the money saving, all of the shrewd business, it was all worth it. We finally have completed the puzzle. We got Mourinho. We have the players that we have. And finally, it has all come together. And so I think for one year, sacrificing UCL might be worth it if that brings a trophy under Mourinho. Will fans accept that? Obviously, that's, that's kind of the big question. But I think that's the way that the board, and especially Daniel Levy, are looking at it. Is Although we've prioritized top four for so many years, maybe this year, this one time with Mourinho, we should instead go after the Cups. Okay, Carl, it's a very interesting concept for you. Is this a bit of a, a gamble, say FA Cup or bust? You know, do we have to necessarily sacrifice the league? I know, like we're sort of changing our viewpoints massively from a fortnight ago, but you know, it does feel like it doesn't have to be necessarily be one or the other. Yeah, I kind of think. Obviously, you know, I agree with Drew. I, I think the appointment that Joey said, as we've discussed, is a statement from the club to say, listen, we've now reached a point where we need to be winning trophies. It's not just about finishing within the top four. This is a club that now needs to actually start winning things. Um, And we've brought a guy in that uh, essentially we know can do that. And we believe that given the right tools, he can do it at this club. And this is the way we now want to go. We want to achieve things rather than being kind of like the nice runners up. Um, I think this year, I think the FA Cup will be priority number one, um, because as we say, it is something that let's get a trophy in the cabinet. That's proved to the players that are here and the fans that we brought a winner in. And this is what we've done. We've won early. But I still think there's probably some hope that doing this, they'll put a good run together in the league and try to at least battle for top four. Um, if it doesn't come off, then I don't think um, it's going to be the end of the world. You know, I do agree that I think the view may be, listen, top four might be slipping away. But if we can put a good run together and possibly at least finish, you know, where we've had a shout at trying to get there, but we've won a trophy, then, you know, I guess the idea there is to try and prove to everyone that we can be a force again going forward from next season, especially with this manager we've got in charge now. And that might be more a message that they want to send to some of the key players at the club. You know, listen, even if we don't get top four, don't go anywhere because we've now given, we've now got this guy in charge where we could possibly win big going forward. Because, Drew, I guess by your logic, if Tottenham are to sort of sacrifice their season, it wouldn't necessarily be the worst thing. Because if you look at Leicester with Brendan Rodgers, they installed him, you know, partway through the season before. He had enough time to bed in, get to know his squad, you know, identify what he really needed, what he didn't. And then they're absolutely flying. So could the same thing happen with Tottenham next season? Yes, that's definitely possible. I mean, I'll say this. Do I think Tottenham wins the Premier League or gets back into the fight for the title this year? No. Does Jose Mourinho have enough time for this year 
to you know do all of those things that Brendan Rodgers did last year plus more? Yeah, absolutely. Right, he has two thirds of the season remaining for him to figure out his best squad, for him to have enough games to to get acclimated to everyone, and the same for his team to to learn his system. And so I think he can actually do a lot of those things this year. I think they're just too far off the league to really get back into contention for that. But that's why I think the FA Cup is such a perfect springboard of momentum for Mourinho. I mean, everywhere he's gone, he has won in his first year. At Chelsea, he won the League Cup. When he was at Inter, he won the league. At Real Madrid, he won the Copa del Rey in his first year. At Manchester United, League Cup and Europa League. So everywhere he's been in his first year, he's won. And I think he can do the same this year with Spurs. Right, He is a trophy specialist. It will give them a bit of confidence and of momentum for next year to say, guys, look, we can do this under Jose Mourinho. And I think it's important that he gets those players to buy in right now, and the FA Cup is going to be the best way for him to do it. Yeah, I think you're right at that, in the sense that the FA Cup is going to be pivotal. And I think with the focus that Manchester City will have on the Champions League and Liverpool will have on trying to get their first ever Premier League, it might be that Tottenham have almost sort of somehow become favourites within the space of a, of a week. I know there's, you know, we're not even starting the competition yet and there's still games to be played, but if you're putting a bet on the, top, the value that they're at at the moment, it wouldn't be the worst pound you ever spend. Anyway, onto the game itself. And Cole, it may only be a game into Jose's tenure, but the first 60 minutes of that performance would have really put a smile on your and my face, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think we saw there the first 70 minutes were kind of encouraging, weren't they? You know, there was some small some small little changes, noticeable things that you kind of sense was, was a departure from what Poch was doing. You know, there was no messing about with goal kicks. They were just getting lumped straight up. Uh, we weren't going to play that dangerous pass it to a guy, you know, within the six-yard box and then try to play out from there. Um, you know, the full-backs, you know, Ben Davis was obviously clearly told, I don't want you bombing forward. Um, I want us just to be steady here and and make sure we don't do nothing silly. Um, you had the front four that were just allowed to go and play and do their thing without having to worry too much behind them. Dyer was brought in just to be a defensive shield and, and again, not do nothing too fancy. And, and for 70 minutes, we, we were in control. Um, it was a one-sided game. And fortunately, those last 20 minutes, you know, you kind of see some old habits crept in and the frailties that were there that Jose will still need to work on came back. You know, I think it was the typical Spurs take your foot off the gas, believing the game was won. Um, and as I said, in the Premier League, if you do that, one goal can change the momentum of a game massively. Um, and as soon as West Ham got that first, you could see that they were sensing, you know, hold on, something could be on here. Um, and unfortunately, I say the last 20 minutes, we, we just flagged and that was slightly worrying. But obviously, Jose would have seen that. He won't have liked what he saw. You know, he won't have he won't have liked those two goals being conceded. But it, it's early days. You know, he only had a few days to work with them. And you kind of felt, well, those first 70 minutes give you some, you know, confident signs that the guy can possibly get it moving in the right direction once he gets more time with the team. And Joe, from a neutral point of view, is it fair to say that that game was probably the best and the worst of Tottenham? You know, obviously, first 60, 70 minutes, bullish in attack, cutting through West Ham like a knife through butter. Last 20, we did switch off. And obviously, that will be of a concern to Mourinho. But, you know, at the same time, does Mourinho learn more from that kind of game than just a 3-0 win, for example? Yeah, well, the interesting thing is definitely uh, attack-wise and in the beginning, Tottenham were... Flawless. They were fantastic. 
right? Deli Alley was back to his best. And then you have a goal each from uh, Kane, Mora, and Son. So that was fantastic for them. Defensively, I think this has kind of been the team that Spurs have put on display several times this year, right? They've had a lot of problems at the back defensively, whether that was, you know, on the pitch or off the pitch with player and rest. So I, I think that wasn't really a shock. I think the reason we and a lot of people are looking at that last 20 minutes or that second half is because that is not a prototypical Jose Mourinho team, right? They're always locked down defensively. They're always very compact, tight at the back. They know exactly what they're doing, where you saw that fade in this game. Now, I think over time, Mourinho will be able to sort that out. He's going to find what his best combination of center backs is. He's going to find out the best way to, to drill them so that they are in sync. So I think that's the most shocking part was to see it come from a, a Mourinho team. But again, I think in the next few weeks, he's going to be able to, to work all that out in training. And so it won't be a problem. And I think for Spurs, at least for the time being, they're going to benefit from the new manager bounce. They're going to benefit from having a very good manager. And at least for the short term, it's going to be up and up. Cole, as for the Hammers, it's down and down. It's not looking good for them at the moment, is it? Because it's seven games in the league now without a win for Manuel Pellegrini. A lot of that will stem from just how bad they've been defensively. And that ultimately stems from the lack of confidence in their own goalkeeper, Roberto. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't help when you've got a Sunday league goalkeeper no, playing in the Premier League. Absolutely you know, awful. because, I mean, that that guy, I, I, say, I, I don't know where they've got him from or, or kind of who looked at him and thought, yeah, this looks like a good goalkeeper. Um, but it certainly doesn't, you know, it certainly makes sense that since Fabianski's been out, they have really struggled. Um, and they were just defensively shocking, you know, the centre-half, um, I can't remember his name now, but Kane was all over him, wasn't he? Making mistakes left, right and centre. Um, and you'd be really worried at the moment if you as a West Ham fan because I, I'd kind of feel that they need to make a change, you know, because they are a club that have got ambitions to want to try and be within that top six. Um, and they're spending some decent money each summer. Um, but you just have to worry about who's actually, you know, scouting these players um, and if they're getting value for money. But it certainly looks like Dr. Death um, is due for his next coffin appointment because, you know, poor old Pellegrini, you know, he looks deaf after time. So, you know, I, I can't see it being long before the axe is wielded there. Um, but that they are, they have been very poor. Um, but like, as you say, when you've got a goalkeeper like that behind you and teams know all you've got to do is kind of just put a cross under the crossbar or take a shot and, you know, the guy doesn't have strong enough wrist to keep anything out, then that, that just spreads fear throughout the whole team. Drew, in terms of Manuel Pellegrini, obviously we've just referenced this awful run of form. Is the fact that the goalkeeping situation is so bad, is that the thing that's pretty much keeping him in a job? Like the board is saying, OK, it's not necessarily all your fault, but that said, they go to Chelsea on Saturday. If they don't win that, that's eight games. Is that then finally the, the moment they pull the trigger? I fear that it is, but I don't think it necessarily has to be. And part of it, as you alluded to and Carl talked about was the goalkeeping situation is a huge Achilles heel. I mean, it's an Achilles heel on both feet for <laughs> West Ham at this point. And so so that might be part of the reason that the board is saying, well, what, what more can we really do when Roberto has conceded on his own merit, what, four or five goals recently? But, you know, other than that, if you look at the beginning of the year, 
West Ham were doing all right. You know, Sebastian Haller has kind of gone missing in recent weeks. And maybe that's Pellegrini's fault, maybe it's not. I don't necessarily think he should get the sack just yet because they have shown the ability to put in a few performances and to play well. Right now, obviously, they're on a bit of a downward spiral. Uh, But I I don't know if it's time to panic yet for West Ham because even with Pellegrini still in charge, I don't think they get into a relegation scrap. And so I think for that reason, you don't really need to pull the trigger on him and let him kind of work it out. You know, maybe come summer, do you reassess and look at who's available and make a change then? Okay, I can understand that. But right now, I don't think is the time to do that. I think they'll be okay. They're not going to worry about going down. And for that reason, Pellegrini, in my book, doesn't really need to face a sack. Yeah, I think the lack of Fabianski is arguably his saving grace at the moment. Like, if you had him in goal and they had that awful run, you'd be like, well, there's no excuses. But I think the fact that they have such a rotten goalkeeper between the sticks is pretty much keeping him in a job. In terms of their goalkeeper, very quickly, Cole, they've got David Martin, who came from Millwall in the summer. Surely he must be given his debut at the weekend. Well, I think a traffic cone would probably be worth putting in at the moment, Dan, to be honest. I feel I can't see that doing a worse job. So, yeah, you, I would, agree. you would sit there and think that if you've got another goalkeeper on the books, then you give that other goalkeeper a chance because all that guy is going to do, you know, he must be drained of confidence now. Once your supporters start cheering when you just manage to pick up a back pass or something like that, you know, um, it, 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 it's not good. You know, he must be drained of confidence. He's shot. Um, so, yeah, even if it's a young, you know, 17, 18-year-old keeper, you can do no worse by putting him in, you know. So, for me, you'd have to make the change. And as I say, if, even if I just purely had a traffic cone sitting on the bench, I'd put it on. <laughs> we never know. Do you know what I mean? It might happen. Don't rule it out. Of course, West Ham are not the only team whose manager is edging out of the P45 door, shall we say. And there's a fair few candidates we could list. So why not run through them all? Carl, Marco Silva, just when it looked like he had his head taken off the chopping block, it looks as if the guillotine is once again being sharpened at Goodison Park, especially when you look at their upcoming fixtures. Yeah, I mean, that's the key thing, isn't it? You know, obviously losing it to some, you know, a team like Norwich at home is never going to go down well, given the season, you know, they've had, you know, great start. But then, you know, you'd really look to be beating those sort of teams at home. But I think the real killer for him now is those next, you know, six or so fixtures, because you really can't see them gain anything out of any of those games. And then at that point, you are sitting there thinking, well, surely this won't go on. You know, they can't keep this guy in charge, you know, if you if you go and lose your next six, then you now really are in a relegation scrap. So, yeah, I'd be very surprised um, if Everton don't make the change very quickly. Um, but maybe they'll, you know, I mean, the talk of obviously of Moyes going back, which I'm not so sure whether that's such a great move or not. You know, he hasn't been such a roaring success since he left them. Um, but again, you know, one of these clubs will probably want to try and make the change before everyone else does so that they can get the, you know, the prime candidate that they're after. Um, and for me, I'd see West, you know, Everton being the, t- the team who probably go next because they're not known for having some patience. They want to get it right. They want to, you know, they've got aspirations again to be within that top six, not within the bottom six. So I, I can't see them showing much patience for too much longer. Well, it was what, I think, was it last season or the season before? That's when they binned off um, Ronald Koeman and then they brought in Sam Allardyce. So they've gone for the firefighter before Drew. 
will they go that route again? You know, someone who might come in for, say, four months at the end of the season. But even if they do, you know, the kind of names that have been banded out in the past, like Moyes, Hughes, Allardyce, like even their stock's sort of fallen dramatically. So where do Everton turn if it's not Marco Silva? If they go with a fireman, I think Moyes might not be a bad candidate. I don't think he should be getting a two- or three-year contract, though. If Everton are going to sack Marco Silva right now, the reason they may not be doing it is because of their tough fixture list, and maybe they don't want to start a new manager, caretaker or not, under such intense pressure and against top-quality opposition. So maybe that's the reason they're going to let Marco Silva just die on this hill, you know, however cruel that may be, and then give a new manager a fresh start. And for who that should be, I really think Everton need a change of course. I think they need to go with one of the young upstart English managers, whether that be Dyche, Howe, uh, Chris it. Wilder. Yeah. You know, yeah, pick pick any of these guys who have who have built a club with not a lot of money, with young players. And now at Everton, they'll have more money than they're used to, but they're still not going to have a huge war chest. And I think they'd be able to find you know, a, a good mix of talent. Because if you look at who the board has brought in in the past few seasons, big money or not, no one has really worked out at Everton that well. I mean, maybe you could say Richarlison or Gilfie Sigurdsson just last season, but that's it. And so that's why I think they need someone who can build a squad as opposed to just bringing in, not that Marco Silva is the highest of profile managers, but instead of just bringing in someone who has a little bit of a, of a name and is going to buy players, bring in someone that can build and has done it. I think that's a better strategy for Everton right now. Yeah, I think you might be right. If I, was, if, I was Eddie, if I was Eddie Howe then, I think that would be the job now that I would be I would be putting my name in the ring for that job if I'm Eddie Howe because I don't think he's going to get a chance at one of the other bigger clubs. Um, so he may now have to take a jump to Everton where, as Drew said, he will get a bigger budget than what he's used to at Bournemouth. There is a little bit of expectation and something you can work with, uh, you know, a club with that prestige. Um, and it might be that he has to kind of go somewhere there and show that he can kind of turn them into a decent side before possibly, say, the bigger clubs in England start to actually take him seriously to actually get one of these jobs, you know, like an Arsenal or someone like that. Because right now, I still think clubs are a little bit dubious to take a chance on Eddie Howe, given that he's he's sat around at Bournemouth for so long. Um, so I really think this this would be a prime job for him to take. Yeah, that's an incredible shout, actually, because when you think about it, is in terms of sort of career trajectory, the, the jump from Bournemouth to, say, Tottenham a fortnight ago, or even last week, wherever it was, would have been too big. I think a lot of fans, even Tottenham fans, would have gone, oh, Eddie Howe, like, not to sort of discredit what he's done, but I think it would have been a risk from Levy... I don't think fans have necessarily bought into it, but, you know, let's say, theoretically, he does three or four years at Everton, maybe wins a League Cup, you know, really sort of pushes the boat out, and then you think, well, actually, yeah, this man's really got something about him, and then you can start putting him into real discussions about those big six jobs. So I think you're absolutely right in the sense that if he ever feels his career needs to kick on, that might be the perfect job. So, you know, wait and see if that happens, but a very good shout, Cole. So, you know, on our predictions, we've got Toby Alderweireld going to... Manchester City in January, and also Eddie Howe, the Everton manager. You've heard it here first. Exclusives being broken. Right, so two more men in the managerial firing line squared off on Saturday. And if a point perhaps eased the pressure on Ralph Hasselhootl only ever so slightly, it very much did the opposite for a certain Unai Emery. Carl, it's no winning five for the Gunners, and that period of winter doom and gloom is very much back at the Emirates, isn't it? 
Oh, massively. And isn't it great, to be yeah, honest? Yeah. You know, Sorry for the <laughs> Arsenal fans that are listening. <laughs> right. um, but I, I think the real worry for Arsenal at the moment is not only did they scrape a point at the weekend, but, you know, that game should have been... Southampton should have had that game buried. And when you consider the way that they've been playing lately, when a team like that turns up and rolls you over the way they possibly and should have done at the weekend, I think that's your real worry because I think that kind of shows you where that team is mentally um, under this guy. Um, and if you're an Arsenal supporter, you, you just there's, there's going to be no confidence there. You know, you're hearing lots of rumours that there's player unrest and stuff like that. Um, and none of it just looks good. Um, again, how long he gets, I don't know. But, you know, I think there'll be a lot of pressure on him. And it certainly doesn't help when teams are coming and taking you apart the way they, they did at the weekend. And God knows how Arsenal managed to get a point out of that game. Because when you see the chances Southampton miss, you just think, wow, you know, the defending is atrocious. Um, and, and, you know, I've said it before and I say it again. You could roll back podcasts from two years ago and it's the same things we're saying about Arsenal. You know, they're OK going forward, but defensively they're just a shambles. And, and for some reason, no one at that club seems to have tried to sort that out and noticed it themselves. Um, and it's amazing. Um, and you can't see that changing for the rest of the season um, unless they make a change. So, again, I'm not sure how long he gets, but I don't think it'll be too much longer if, if performances like that keep getting put in. And Drew, Cole just referenced, you know, Southampton having so many chances and Hartenhutl after the game was saying, really, we should have put four of those away. So you only have to see the way that Arsenal, well, they didn't even celebrate their late equaliser, did they? They were so embarrassed by that performance that they knew they got away with one. Yeah, well, Hartenhutl's right because they had more than just the two. They had more chances on goal than are reflected in the final score. So, yeah, Southampton definitely... Could have gotten three points from this. Should have gotten three points from this. And for Arsenal as a squad, as the manager, you should be walking back to the dressing room with your head down. Because they haven't done anything of note this year. And, and this game in particular as well. right? Lacazette, especially the last goal, the ball just kind of fell for him. And obviously he's a good enough striker where he's not going to miss from there. And he's not going to bash it into one of the defenders on the goal line. He's going to score. But other than that, Arsenal have done nothing. And they don't really deserve to get applause from eking out a 2-2 draw at home against relegation battling Southampton. So Unai Emery and the team have to figure this out. Now, obviously, I don't think he's going to do it. And therefore, he should get fired. But the only reason he hasn't been fired is because Arsenal have no plan for after him. They obviously don't have their next manager lined up the way that Spurs did. They obvi- Or maybe they've tried and all the managers have turned them down and said, I don't want to go to Arsenal. And maybe that's the case. But it's clear right now that the only reason they're keeping Emery in the job is because they don't have the plan for what comes after Emery. Because if they did, they would have fired him and brought in a new manager by now. But with him staying, you're just going to see more and more lackluster performances like this every single week. I'll start with you, Drew, because you mentioned plan, and it looks like Emery doesn't have a plan at the moment because he reverted to a back three on Saturday, and this chopping and changing, it almost is a sign of desperation. You know, when you're running out of ideas, you're just trying to find anything that sticks. There's a few parallels to what Pochettino did in his sort of last few weeks, so it's almost as if the writing is clearly on the wall. Yeah, he's 
definitely changing because he has no clue what to do, and he is just throwing up Hail Marys every single weekend. You know, when you look at the back three, and, well, just the defense in general, that was what everyone was talking about was, oh, well, Kieran Tierney was injured, and he's going to come back soon. Hector Bellerin, Callum Chambers. Well, now those guys are playing, and it's still not much better. Plus, when you go to a back three, you still have the the scariest defenders to watch in Socrates and David Luiz. So if, you, if you're just going to continue playing them, you haven't really fixed any of the problems at the back, and that's what we see now. No matter how many defenders they get fit, the nightmarish ones are still there and going to drag them down. And so once again, Emery has no clue what he's doing, and neither does Arsenal. They have no plan for what they need to do after him. It starts with firing him, but clearly they won't even do that. And long may it continue. So, <laughs> right, one man after 70 minutes on Sunday may have had the knives being sharpened for him. That was Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. But, Cole, a comeback at Bramall Lane will just about keep him at the wheel for another few weeks. I must say, an incredible 3-3 draw against Sheffield United. Yeah, what an incredible game that was, wasn't it, Dan? You know, all of a sudden, you know, Sheffield United playing really well and get themselves two up. And, and obviously, everyone is now sitting there going, oh, well, Poch is there waiting. You know, could this be it? Um, you know, everyone writing, you know, Ollie's obituaries for him already by the end of that game. Um, and then all of a sudden you had that mad sort of like 10 minutes where United suddenly go and get those three goals. And it's um, it looks a little bit rosier. But obviously Sheffield United deserves something out of that game and rightfully got the point um, at the end there. And and yeah, I, yeah, I do kind of feel now that Ollie's got a new pressure put on top of his head, hasn't he? Because with Poch out of work and obviously the fact that everyone knows possibly, you know, United would love him and Poch possibly secretly would love the United job. Each time now, you know, if United put in a poor performance, then Poch's name is going to be there. And obviously if you're the United board and you are looking for a long-term future, then, you know, it may just be one defeat and one poor, poor performance that gives you the excuse to say, well, actually, you know, maybe we need to make a change. And I know United fans now that the minute Poch was out of work, have turned around and said, we'd happily, you know, we'd happily make a change now, you know, definitely do it, make the change, get Poch in. Um, so, yeah, very interesting time for Ollie at the wheel. He'll get a couple more weeks, but um, I think a few more dire performances like they did put in for that first sort of 70 minutes at Sheffield United, then you can see each week the pressure mounting um, and a couple of defeats in a row, maybe three defeats in a row, sees him, sees him gone. Well, this is it, Drew, isn't it? It's all about the, the moving of the managerial deck chair, shall we say, because it's all about timing now. You've got... Bayern Munich still looking for a permanent successor to Niko Kovac. The Real Madrid job is always available regardless of who's in charge. You know, it's always going to sort of come up every now and again. Manchester United, obviously, you know, they're sort of thinking if Poch is the next target, how much more can we give to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer before we lose Poch to someone else? So, I mean, what do they do? Do they stick or twist? Well, from my understanding, I, I can't really corroborate this or confirm it. But one place that I, that I have read this is apparently Pochettino has a non-compete clause in his buyout to where he can't manage a Premier League team this season. Again, that that's, this is what I've heard. I, I don't know if it's true, but if it is, well, that rules out Manchester United, at least for the time being. But if I'm, if I'm Pochettino, I don't go there anyways because everyone knows he can build a squad. What he hasn't proven to people is that he can win trophies. 
And so going to Manchester United, he's just going to have to rebuild the squad again with some youngsters and money. But that doesn't necessarily guarantee trophies. And obviously going to Bayern or you know Real Madrid doesn't guarantee you trophies either. But I would say that's your one and only goal. You don't have to worry about building the squad. And so for Pochettino, I actually don't think there's a reason for him to go to Manchester United. He should skip them. And it's not as if they can outbid anyone else. Or it's not as if Manchester United is going to outbid every other club in the world. They're all going to be able to compete with their offers for Pochettino. So I don't think he should go there. And with that in mind for Manchester United, I think they are going to have to go after another big-time manager, whether that be Max Allegri or wait until the summertime when there's more managers available. You know, who knows? Maybe Thomas Tuchel is going to be available out of PSG. So I think that's what Manchester United should wait for is the summer and reassess. I mean, I look at that Manchester United team, and I don't know about you, Cole, but I look at it and I think there's absolutely no way they can finish in the top six. Like, you look at some of the footballers that are there, like Brandon Williams. Who on earth was he last week? Like, Mason Greenwood. I mean, don't get me wrong, they're probably young starlets that are going to be really good players and make me look like an idiot in a few years' time. But as of right now, the dearth of quality at Old Trafford is quite striking. Yeah, I mean, they're not putting in good performances, are they? And, and even when you look at that squad, you know, someone like Jesse Lingard, I mean, you know, what has happened to him? Because he has just dropped off a cliff, hasn't he? You know, he doesn't really add anything to that team. Um, defensively, when you've still got defenders and centre-halves like Phil Jones um, there and making the kind of mistakes that he did this weekend, you know, a lot of the time they've got De Gea to thank for not being even in even more trouble than they have been. Um, obviously, lots of rumours going around at the moment that Pogba um, won't be around for much longer and, you know, possibly with his injury could not even, might not even play another game for United before he moves. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with Drew. You know, when you look at that squad, you don't see a squad that a manager will think, well, I'm going to, I can walk in there and start winning things instantly. You know, there is a lot of work to be done. Um, you know, obviously there might be some money that you can splash around, which is nice. Um, but again, you know, if we talk about Poch, then, you know, if I was offered, the, if you're him and you're offered the chance at a Bayern Munich job or a Man United job, well, right now I'd take the Bayern Munich job because one thing's for sure, you'll certainly get that monkey off your back by not winning something because it would take a, a massive disaster for someone to be able to go to Bayern Munich and not either win the league or cup with them. So you'd certainly get some trophies under your name um, if you go there. Whereas at United again, you know, you could go in. You've got to say, you've got to try and build the squad with some younger players scattered with a few decent ones. Um, but again, no guarantees that you start winning there. And if you spend some money and still don't deliver, then again, you just keep getting that, you know, that, that mud slung at you that, well, you just can't win nothing wherever you go. Um, so, yeah, it is an interesting one. But I certainly, you know, I don't fear, I don't think anyone fears playing United at the moment because they don't play some particularly good stuff. No, they don't. Right, that's been the end of the first half. Fantastic work, you two. On the other side of the break, we're going to do it all over again. Your accumulator letting you down again. You've cashed out early. And you just can't win. Prehistoric football coupons? Nah. Have a think about it. Why not play a new way? At Loserpool, pick a loser and win a thousand pounds in a last man standing tournament. Be a loser and win at Loserpool. 
Enter for free now. Visit loserpool.com. Okay then, welcome back. I hope you're still there. More importantly, I hope my guests are still here because it's time to pay the bills and that means it's time to play Loserpool. Right, so we've been in the international break last week. It sort of buggered up the sink a little bit, but the guests were kind enough to offer up a pick off recording and that means that Carl went for Brighton to lose last week, Drew went for West Ham to lose last week and I went for Crystal Palace to lose last week, which means we're all correct. That means Carl's leading the leaderboard with 12 points, Drew's on 10 and I'm on 8 so, we go again. Drew, who is going to be your guaranteed loser this weekend? Well, I'm going to go with a team led by a man under fire that we talked about just a few moments ago. Everton this week, guaranteed losers, traveling to the King Power to take on Leicester. There's absolutely no way the Toffees win or draw this game. So, this week, Everton, guaranteed losers. Good pick, sir. And, uh, Carl, what about yourself, mate? Well, for me, I'm going to stick with the uh, new manager bounce, Dan, and uh, I'm going to go for Bournemouth to be my guaranteed loser this week because I just think Jose, first Premier League game at home, I think we'll see a comfortable Spurs win. Excellent. I was going to go for that, but not a problem because I'm going to go with um, West Ham to lose at Chelsea, especially if Chocolate Wrist is in goal. I think it could be all manner of goals. If um... that, that would have been my next one, Dan. <laughs> yeah, I think we, we could have just interchanged, really, but that's absolutely fine. So just to recap, uh, Drew has gone for Everton to lose at Leicester. Carl has gone for Bournemouth to lose at Tottenham. And I've gone for West Ham to lose at Chelsea. So that is our loser pool picks of the week. Right then, we better crack on because we are well over time for the first half. But that's not a problem because there was a lot of talking points. So, we focus on the teams that are weighing up a managerial change. Let's look at the teams that are eyeing up a title tilt. First up, let's go to the Etihad and the clash between Man City and Chelsea. Carl, City came out on top, but they certainly did not have it all their own way, did they? No, they certainly didn't. You know, Chelsea put up a really good fight, didn't they? And for, you know, for quite you know long periods in that game, kind of had, you know, City worried with their movement and runners off the ball. Um, and, you know, I think, as we said earlier, you know, if you're going to lose at Man City, then that's not a bad way to lose. You know, you've put up a really good fight. Um, you've given them a little scare. And actually, you know, if you're taking your chances and a little bit better finishing, could have got something out of the game. So I think Chelsea could probably take that defeat as, you know, one where they come away saying, well, actually, we played really well there. Some positives. City will just be glad they got it over the line and got a difficult game out of the way. And especially knowing, obviously, that, you know, Liverpool's result had gone for them because that kind of pressure and knowing that you can't really slip up now, um, they would have been really worried through points in that game. Uh, Obviously, a key worry for City now, though, is Aguero going off and obviously seeing what damage has been caused by that injury because that's certainly a player they can't afford to lose for injury um, at this period of the season, given that, you know, I say any point drop could be, you know, title over. So they'll be glad they got it done, but it wasn't comfortable um, obviously, you know, we, I'm sure we'll talk about Sterling's goal in a minute. But, yeah, it, you know, they'll be glad they got it done. But a lot of positives for Chelsea after that game. And, Drew, as a Chelsea fan, what positives are you taking from that performance? You know, I thought that Frank set his side up particularly well, considering the relative youth in the side, you know, the way they were passing, beating the press and all that. I think they gave a really good account of themselves. So what was your take on the Blues' performance? Yeah, I thought Chelsea was the better side for most of the first half. I think even though they lost this game, I think it was a very positive loss in that they've kind of learned how good they really are, right? Because for the past few weeks, people have talked about, well, are they in the title race? Could they actually do it? 
with this young squad. And I think this game, even though they were the stronger side for large parts, you saw, especially in the second half, Manchester City was able to shut them down. And so you see the quality in their team. You see the quality in man- in managers, in Pep over Frank Lampard, at least you know for, for right now. And so I think this game is actually very useful in that they learned they're not in the title race. And this was a little bit of a, of a pushback from the league and saying, you know, not so fast. Calm down, come back down to earth. And so I think in that respect, it was good for Chelsea. And they were able to go to 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 go toe-to-toe with one of the best teams in the league for, you know, long stretches at a time. So I think there's a lot of good things to take from this, uh, from player performances to the tactical setup to a lot of different things. And so I think Chelsea need to hold their head up high and realize that top four is probably going to be the ceiling for this team uh, this season. And Drew, obviously, as a Chelsea fan again, are you a little bit worried now that Jose is at the uh, controls at Tottenham? You know, it's a nine-point margin between us two sets of teams. So any cause of concern about that race for what might be fourth? Concern, no, because I think top four was always a bit of a pipe dream going into the season. Just now seeing how good Chelsea have been, I think people's expectations have gone up, and understandably so. So even if they still miss the top four, I don't think it's a failed season. In terms of Spurs, I'm also not concerned because I, I, I guess maybe concerned isn't the right word to say it. I think they were always going to snap out of their funk. It was just a matter of when. And obviously now with Jose Mourinho, this might be the time to do it. But they were always going to be a better team and creep back up in. I would say instead of concerned, probably the better word is, is it hurts. It hurts to see Mourinho at Spurs. He he's he was a Chelsea man, in in my book, you know, and helped launch them into European or domestic success and European juggernauts, and so that that it hurts a little bit. But concerned, not not really, because um, again, I don't know if this was really a season you could count on Chelsea finishing in the top four, anyways. With that though, you know you're not expecting at the start, but now your expectations have been raised due to a good start. You know you don't really want to be seen as a team that blew a nine-point lead, so now you're sort of where you are third in, so I guess surely the expectations of the objective has changed? Yeah, it should. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I think people are 100% correct, and myself included, in expecting a top-four finish out of this team based upon the way they've played. Again, though, I I think it's under a short sample size because if you look at how they're going to fare during the Christmas period, if they you know, reach the Champions League knockouts and how they balance that uh, in the springtime. So I, I, I think there's still a lot of unanswered questions about this team because so many of them, and especially the key players, haven't gone through a full season in the Premier League. And so I, I think people are right to have raised their expectations. I also think it would be understandable if Chelsea do drop out of the top four. And I don't really think it's a nightmare because just as they did in this game, you learn where they need to improve for next year. And they know exactly in the summer we have to buy this player because in this area of the pitch we struggled you know, over the, past, uh, over the second half of the year. And so I, I think it, it's going to be okay. And it's not you know, the, the biggest uh, problem in the world. It's not the world is, is ending if Chelsea miss out on the top four. 
yeah, I think that's a fair viewpoint. And also, you know, why not look at it when we get to the second third of the season, you know, 26 games in and think, right, you know, if Chelsea's still nine points clear, then it really is theirs to lose. So, of course, you're right in the sense there's a lot of football still to be played. And Cole, we've referenced City's issues at centre-back enough times this season, but at times on Saturday, it looked like there was two Fernandinho's on the pitch. He seemed to be everywhere and dealing with just about everything that Chelsea threw at him. Yeah, he's key now for City, isn't he? You know, because obviously with with those injuries at the back there, he really needs to stay fit for them because he's a great player. You know, he knows what he's doing. You know, the master of dark arts, you know, stopping stopping players when he needs to, knowing where to be, how to read the game. Um, and, And City have got to pray that he can stay fit because, you know, if they was to lose him, then I think that's where you see their title challenge go off the rails. So they'll be wrapping him in cotton wool. I'm sure during you know rest rest periods. And Cole, anything to add on VAR this week, or has everything been said regarding Raheem Sterling? I guess people aren't even getting that worked up about it now because uh, they, just, I, they just settle for how frustrating it really is. Yeah, I mean, I think you can tell the whole. Even when you look at programs like Match of the Day now, where they you know not even spending the time on it anymore, because I think we all know offsides like that are just laughable. Um, you know, it, it, you can't call that offside for me. I'm sorry. I know people will say, well, he, you know, he, his shoulder was there and that is not offside. Um, and like I say, when we're disallowing goals that, like that, it, it's a farce. Um, you know, we saw this weekend, you know, the goal was talk about the Liverpool game in a minute. Now, you know, that's a decision where I can, you know, you can accept maybe VAR gets involved. Was there a push on Lovren? But these offsides, you know, I think we're giving up now, aren't we? And I don't even think we can be bothered to get annoyed anymore. Well, this is it, isn't it? It's just like, oh, well, here we go again. And here we go again because we are going to focus on VAR once more. And Drew Coles just mentioned it. The James Tonkins goal, in inverted commas, that was ruled out against Liverpool. Was that the right decision? Would that have been given as a penalty if it was in the other area? You know, how does that one pan out? in terms of being struck off the record? I really think seeing it in slow motion made the push look harder and worse than it actually was. I think that was really tough to to call for that one because there wasn't a lot in it. And, and maybe you're right. Maybe if it happens at the other end, then you know they, they, they don't reverse the call and, and whatnot. But there wasn't enough in there. And, I mean, when you're in the box, when it, when you're looking at, a set piece you're going to have some pushing and shoving you're going to have have some guys you know holding on to each other a little bit obviously you know where do you draw the line and and your judgment comes into it as, as an official like i get that for this one i really don't think watching it live there was enough to to make a call on that at least not for me i didn't think the push had that didn't have enough force to really make that call so i wouldn't have done it no, I wouldn't have either, really. But, you know, that's the lie of the land at the moment and the law of the game and all that. So, Cole, the Liverpool game, I think it's fair to say, wasn't pretty. Arguably, their worst performance of the season so far. Maybe Manchester United, you could offer into that argument. But when you're gunning for the title, it's all about getting the job done. And the job was certainly done on Saturday. Yeah, you're going to have weeks like that, aren't you? I think Klopp said after the game, you know, it's probably the worst performance he's seen them put in for a long while. And obviously he referenced that, you know, he's seen areas of the game there that he didn't like from them and that they'll need to work on. But again, you know, all good sides and all good title winning sides go through these little spells where they don't play some great football. They, you know, they're not on it. But the, 
the sign of that great side is that you've managed to get the result and you manage to keep, you know, things going and keeping the wins ticking over. You don't drop any points. And Liverpool seem to be in that kind of groove at the moment where even if they're not playing well, they've got enough about them to get the win over the line and just keep hammering nails into the coffin, keep denting the confidence of the other teams behind them. And unfortunately, you know, this year, I can't see them letting this slip. You know, I think, you know, they're going to see this well over the line um, and get the job done. But that is a sign of good sides, isn't it? You know, you can come up with those results when you need to. Um, Trent Alexander-Arnold may need to calm down with his crossfield passes because that was some pass to Andros Townsend in that first half. Um, and thankfully for them, you know, they'll be lucky that Wilfred Zahar just didn't finish that one right at the death because that was a glorious opportunity. But if you're a Liverpool fan at the moment, if you get another win, you come away going, well, job done. Wasn't pretty, but job done. And Drew, you know, a criticism of Liverpool, or I guess envious, is that they're lucky. At what point do we stop saying it's luck and it's sheer determination that's getting them over the line? Because they can't just keep being that lucky all the time, can they? Not until they win the Premier League trophy. Fair enough. Will I... Will I say that? And the reason is because, and I don't like to say luck because then, yeah, it it almost brings about an idea that they're not deserving of winning. Hey, you score the goals, you deserve to win. But my thing with Liverpool is, other than Manchester City, they have not won a league game by more than a goal since September. It's been two and a half months. And you do see them getting... I, I, I rather say fortunate than lucky in late penalty calls, a goal mouth scramble like we saw in this game. And so I, I, I think at some point when you're always squeaking by by just one goal, you're really getting through by the skin of your teeth. At some point that is going to end. And if your margin of error is so small already, then when that luck does run out, you're going to start dropping points. And so I don't think Liverpool are really going to be smooth sailing until the end of this season. And especially you look at, right, once you take out one player, they're a completely different side. Salah was out for this game. Oxlade, Chamberlain, and Origi are nowhere near as good as Salah up front. When Roberto Firmino comes out and Divock Origi plays, right, it's not the same team. And so I think if you have, you know, one injury, it can really affect them. And so... I just don't trust Liverpool right now. I, I think they're they're gonna if they're struggling right now and winning games, they're gonna struggle and start dropping points at some point in this season. And I think that's gonna be the opportunity for Leicester and City to creep in. So I'm just I'm not sold on Liverpool at all. Right, okay. This is a question that we probably won't get to this week, but just put this in your minds for next week when we get around to it. I'll ask the question. Will Liverpool be considered, at the moment, one of the best Premier League teams? You know, let's say if they could go another 20 games unbeaten. You know, at the moment they are, what, they've lost two games in 53. Arsenal won 49 out of 50, didn't they? Although a lot of those were invincible. They were considered one of the best. Manchester City got 100 points and all that. So, are they right at the precipice, at the top of, you know, the very, very best teams? So you don't need to answer it now, but give that one some thought because we might be able to discuss that one in length next week because we've still got a little bit more to do this time around. So, Carl, one man who was lucky was Jamie Vardy. Missed a penalty against Brighton, but was fortunate for it to be called back for encroachment. That meant a goal and an assist for the 32-year-old on Saturday. He looks like he's playing 10 years younger than his current age at the moment. Yeah, he's on fire, isn't he, you know? 
brilliant player. I love him. He's someone who doesn't give anybody a minute's rest, does he? You know, if you're a defender, that guy is all over you for 90 minutes. And, and you do fear that, well, if I, if, I, if I let this guy get a couple of yards on me, he's gone. I won't catch him. He's in a rich vein of form where anything he hits seems to go in, apart from the penalty, first of all. But then you knew there'd be no mistake the second time. Um and he kind of, I think, as we've said before, when you talk about it, could it be good for, say, a team like Spurs to miss out on Champions League football, Leicester are kind of showing you that when you potentially have only really got the Premier League to focus on and you can get fresh, have that nice little break and just prepare for your next game, then you can really see where that bounce is coming from because they're playing some great football. You know, they've got Madison there doing well. You know, Perez has come in and done really well since he's joined. You know, they've used the money wisely that they got for Maguire. Rogers is looking like he's, you know, found a club that suits him. Um, and you just think right now, everything, if you're a Leicester fan, is really rosy. Um, and you can't see them dropping points anytime soon because they've got the momentum. You know, they've got a great goalkeeper in between the sticks as well. Um, and yeah, if you're a Leicester fan, you'll just be, you know, be dreaming of, the, you know, giving someone a bloody nose and going for the title again. Well, they've conceded, what, eight goals in 13 matches. Incredible stats at one end, perfect at the other end with Jamie Vardy, you know, not just scoring, but making goals as well. And Drew, with that in mind, a lot of media outlets are saying that Leicester are really the team that Liverpool should be worrying about this season. Is that valid, or do you think they'll just be a step below and City will be, once again, duking it out with the Reds? I think it absolutely is valid. And the reason is because if you look at Leicester, they kind of do the opposite of Liverpool in that they dominate teams. You know, they've had, I think it was a 5-0 win against Newcastle. They had 9-0 against Southampton. And then in this game against Brighton, right, yeah, it's only two goals. But I actually think the Jamie Vardy penalty incident is just emblematic of how good they really are this year. He misses a penalty, but you know what? We're just going to take that away. He's going to retake the penalty. And then what does he do? He scores. He doesn't miss. He doesn't get it blocked again or anything like that. I actually think Leicester are the biggest threat to... Liverpool right now not that Man City isn't but I just think Leicester have so much more confidence like Carl alluded to they don't have to worry about Champions League and so I think when they Leicester will play both Liverpool and Man City back to back near Christmas time and so I think Brendan Rodgers can say to his team guys it's a three-week period where you're going to play every day or every three days and then you know we have a normal once a week schedule and I think if he can really push this team through that Christmas time period pretty much unscathed, then they are, without a doubt, the biggest challenger to the title. I think you might be right in that sense, actually. Right, we've got about five minutes left and three matches still to cover. Can we fit them in? Yes, we can. So, Cole, Wolves, they got the better of Bournemouth at the weekend. They're now unbeaten in eight. Admittedly, a fair few draws than they would have liked, but they're fifth in the table. It does seem that they're finally finding their groove now, doesn't it? Yeah, they've kind of got their season back on track a little bit, haven't they? And they're, they're playing like the Wolves from last season again. Um, and they, you know, obviously just shaking off that early Europa League um, start that they had. Um, and, and they do play some good football. You know, they are dangerous up top. You know, they look reasonably solid at the back. Um, and that was a good win for them at the weekend. So, you know, they're another team that, you know, you think at this now, they'll, they'll again want to try and aim for, like, you know, fifth or sixth this season. Um, and again, you know, got a good man in charge there who, you know, seems to be a good fit for that club. 
um, and, and they'll look to build um, if they can get fifth or sixth again. So, you know, we have to see what happens again when those Europa League ties come back round because the Thursday, Sunday's not nice. You know, we've been through for it a long while and it does mess you up slightly. But they're a team with great potential, that's for sure. Well, I'll tell you what, they could win the Europa League and be in the Champions League next season. Don't rule that out either, but I don't think we've got time to discuss that point. Drew, you get Watford. It looked like their season was just getting underway. And then they were hammered by Burnley. So today the Watford board have said that they're not considering a manager change again just yet, but there are rumblings of discontent at Vicarage Road. Yeah, it was surprising how much Watford capitulated at the end of the match and allowing another two late goals. Look, is firing Kike Sanchez-Flores really going to be the answer? Probably not. I mean, De La Feu hasn't played well. You know, they've missed Troy Deeney. And, and so I think there's just a lot of problems there with the, with the squad and the manager. And the manager's not helping. But obviously, when they had a different one, Avi Grazia, that wasn't the case either. So I don't know how firing Kike Sanchez-Flores is going to benefit the team. I'm sure they're going to do it as another hopeful managerial bounce but they failed the first time this year so who who you know who am I to say they're going to get it right this time yeah I mean they are well known for pulling the trigger so there's no reason why they couldn't um cut their losses again but it would be a very risky strategy but I guess when you're at the bottom of the table what have you got to lose talking of losing Newcastle did exactly that last night a solid win for Aston Villa almost showing them at their attacking best and more importantly for Dean Smith's men a clean sheet and I'll leave you and the listeners with a question that you don't need to answer but just think what does Joe Linton actually do for Newcastle? I'll leave it there. And before I do, though, I need to thank my guests. We've just about hit full time. So sterling effort from you both, as always. Drew, thank you ever so much for your time. Yeah, well, thank you having me for having me on, Dan. I appreciate it. And it was a great time, as always. Cheers, buddy. And Cole, thanks for you also. And I'm sure you'll be joining me next week with Drew. Yeah, Dan, looking forward to it. Another good week as always, um, you know, and can't wait again for this weekend. Fantastic. With that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast in association with Loser Paul. And until next time, goodbye. Podcast Network. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.